I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. The judge was not pleased at the long-awaited sentencing hearing for Roger Stone. U.S. Judge Amy Berman Jackson could barely contain her annoyance with Stone himself and with the Department of Justice over its unorthodox handling of the case, first recommending a tough seven to nine year sentence for Stone and then pulling it in an apparent attempt to soften the blow for one of the president's fiercest political allies, a move that prompted four prosecutors to withdraw from the case. Stone, she declared, was not prosecuted for standing up for the president. He was prosecuted for covering up for the president. As for the Justice Department, she drilled the new assistant U.S. attorney in charge of the case to explain the department's reversal and got no clear answers. In the end, she sentenced Stone to a sentence of three years and four months, less than the original prosecutors wanted, but still a stiff sentence for the self-styled dirty trickster. It was, for the time being, an affirmation that the rule of law still holds in Donald Trump's America. But for how long? We'll discuss with Don Ayer, a former deputy attorney general who is calling on Bill Barr to resign, and we'll talk to our colleague Hunter Walker, who is on the ground in Las Vegas for this week's Nevada caucus, all on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Well, quite a few days, quite a week for the Department of Justice. Fair to say this is a Justice Department in crisis. More than uh, 2,000 former federal prosecutors have called on uh, Bill Barr to resign. Four federal prosecutors who are on the Roger Stone case withdrew, one quitting the department entirely. And I just came back from the uh, Roger Stone sentencing hearing, which was uh, quite an extraordinary event. A very irritated, annoyed Judge Amy Berman Jackson, annoyed at both the conduct of Roger Stone, but also the conduct of the Justice Department itself. And it's back and forth on the uh, sentencing recommendation for Stone. You know, it's weird. Uh, the thing that is, you know, is following. I'm down here in Miami, actually, on vacation, but huh. uh, just com- completely <laughs> captivated by this and obsessed with it. So I'm following the sentencing along on Twitter, and I guess reporters now can tweet from the courtroom because I'm seeing stuff uh, unfold. Kind you got you got you got to watch from the press room if you're actually in the courtroom or even the overflow courtroom, which I was in. Uh, okay. you cannot enter if your uh, iPhone or laptop is on. Okay, so but for those people who are out in the overflow room. 
watching. They're tweeting. And so I can follow it along in, in real time. And the thing that was striking to me is so the, the judge is um, dressing down the Justice Department for its conduct. And and people are tweeting, uh, oh, drugs is really angry here and, and predicting that uh, Stone is going to get a very, very harsh sentence. And he did get a harsh sentence. I mean, three to four, th- three and a half years is, is a lot of time. But I think the speculation was that that he might get closer to the seven or nine that the Justice Department prosecutors had, had originally asked for. And at the end of the day, he probably got pretty much what the judge was going to give him in the first place, which was that right. three and a half years, 40, 40 months. And it cut me thinking that there's kind of a pattern in the Trump administration that for all of the attempts to be corrupt and for all of the chaos, at some level, nothing really happens, uh, you know. But on the other hand, over the longer term, this stuff is corrosive and it does undermine our institutions and the rule of law. And it is really serious stuff. So it must have been very strange to be in that courtroom seeing that happen. It was very strange. And frankly, I was surprised when the judge finally gave the sentence of 40 months, three years and four months. Yeah, I was... uh, took a little wager with uh, Pete Williams, who was uh, there sitting a few from me. And, uh, you know, he thought it was going to be three. I said five. And I said, I thought it was going to be five because Jackson was clearly pissed. And if you want to know how pissed she was, she actually, you remember, a lot of this revolves around the witness tampering of Randy Credico and the threats to take away his dog, Bianca, a former guest on skullduggery i should remind our (laughs) listeners you know his threats to him and she actually reads out the full unexpurgated texts and emails that stone was sending to credico include capping with the words which she reads out prepare to die cocksucker. Now, I've never heard a federal judge use the word cocksucker in a courtroom before, uh, but I took that as uh, her effort to emphasize Stone's conduct. So that was that was pretty striking. And then the but other- look, let's let's, yeah. let's let, let, we got to talk about the fallout from all of, all of this, okay. um, and particularly Barr's conduct in going in there and intervening in the sentencing of Roger Stone, and then that extraordinary interview that Barr gave to our colleague uh, Pierre Thomas at ABC News, in which he said that these. Uh, Tweets from Trump attacking the Justice Department are making it impossible for him to do his job. Now, I note that one of the things I saw while this sentencing was going on was that the president tweeted and he tweeted about the fact how unfair it was that the Justice Department, while they're going after Roger Stone, have not prosecuted James Comey or McCabe. And so this is exactly the kind of tweet that Bill Barr has said has made his job impossible to do. The implication of those statements to Pierre Thomas was that if it happened again, he would have to resign. He was drawing a line in the sand. And now it has happened not once, but multiple times. And I've talked to people who are close to Barr, to friends of Barr. They think that he is not going to have any choice but to resign because not doing so makes him look incredibly weak and feckless. And so I'm not in the predictions business here. I'm a reporter. But I think this has got to be something that Barr is thinking about. And in fact, The Washington Post has reported that he has contemplated resigning. 
Uh, yeah, look, once I thought that once Barr said it, uh, because I think we know enough about Donald Trump to know he is incorrigible and there's no way he's going to stop tweeting. This is uh, this is what he does. <laughs> this is ingrained in him. Nobody is going to tell him what to do. He's the president and Barr is the underling. So I think Barr is in an impossible situation. And we're going to discuss this with Don Ayer in a moment. Don Ayer being a former deputy attorney general who resigned himself during the uh, uh, tenure of President George H.W. Bush. Dick Thornburg was the attorney general at the time. And Barr cannot, I don't think he can survive given the standard he set saying the president has to stop these tweets. The question is, and we'll ask this of, of, of Don Ayer, what happens after that? We've seen the kind of appointments that uh, Trump is now making with the extraordinary one of Richard Grinnell as acting director of national intelligence, somebody who has no real qualifications other than his loyalty and fealty to Donald Trump. You know, one can only imagine who would end up running the Justice Department. Well, you may want to look at the cast of characters who have been commentators, legal commentators on Fox News. Maybe it'll be Judge Napolitano. I mean, I don't you know, know. Napolitano uh, broke with uh, uh, Trump uh, on impeachment and actually was supporting impeachment. So I think point. that would good rule point. him out. Uh, yeah. look, so I think we're I, I talking look, Judge uh, uh, Gene Pirro here, right? There you go. All right. Last thing I want to say on Barr here, uh, and we've talked a lot about him on this podcast because we knew him well back in the day. And maybe he doesn't care about this, but I think it's too late for him to resign sort of in principle and kind of to protect his his uh, his, his reputation. I mean, I think about and let's even putting aside how he handled the Mueller report, because I know that's um, complicated and we don't necessarily agree with all of the criticism on that. But if you look at the litany of things that he has done recently, you know, starting with, I think, the most egregious, which would have been intervening in the politically sensitive case at the sentencing level. Um, here I'm talking about Roger, the Roger Stone case, where the guidelines, sentencing guidelines were pretty clear. You know, a, a sentence that was signed off on by the U.S. attorney, by the deputy attorney general. I mean, that's a pretty severe kind of breach. Then on the Durham investigation into the origins of the Russian probe, which, you know, may be understandable given all the questions surrounding the FISA applications and and so on and so forth. But, you know, he's flying around personally with Durham, investigating it himself. I mean, here he is, the attorney general acting like he's a line prosecutor. Okay, that's another one. Then you have Barr appointing these, you know, trusted prosecutors and a U.S. attorney from, from St. Louis to look into other politically sensitive cases where there were already guilty pleas. That would be the, the Flynn case. What, what's he going to do? Appeal the conviction on the defense side? I mean, it's crazy. And then the final thing I want to say, which to me in some ways is the most bizarre, is the appointment of a U.S. attorney in Pittsburgh for some reason. I don't know why Pittsburgh who is this as a kind of special channel for Rudy Giuliani to pass along his conspiracy theories about Ukraine? You know, this is known as the intake process. But, you know, like, who is this guy and why does Rudy Giuliani get a special a special channel? He's the lawyer for the president and he's yeah. carrying his political, wa you know, water. Yeah. So like it's, it's not that complicated. Look, I, I don't disagree with your critique, but I do remain fixated on, you know, my God, what would come after Barr? You know, we saw who came after.
after Jeff Sessions, uh, Matt Whitaker, Matt Whitaker uh, you know, one of the more bizarre choices to be uh, acting attorney general. And, um, you know, whether Trump can find somebody along those lines who would have any Let's credibility see, at all. See, is could, a, he, is could, a he, could he pardon Michael Cohen? <laughs> and, and install him as uh, attorney general. Yeah. Uh, look, there are lots of uh, lots of possibilities here. But look, uh, we are also going to talk to our colleague Hunter Walker in this episode about uh, events in Nevada after that wild debate last night in which Michael Bloomberg got pummeled. I think it was pretty striking to anybody watching it that Bloomberg did not have any real defenses to offer to uh, what he was being criticized for on the uh, NDAs for sexual harassment or the stop and frisk. And, uh, you know, we all thought Bloomberg was the guy to watch because of this ton of money spending. And then, you know, man, after last night, I don't know. Uh, yeah. if he remains uh, I, a think viable is a, candidate. I think this is a, a classic case where, you know, in some ways, Bloomberg was hurt by all the money he has because he could go out there, spend $250 million on the airwaves, see his poll numbers go go up, and they shot up. I mean, they really did to where he was like, you know, number two nationally or something and not subject himself to any actual scrutiny, not doing any media, any media interviews, not going on the Sunday shows. And so he comes into this debate not having really debated since like 2009. Not, it wasn't a great debater to begin with. And he is this like bubble waiting to be burst. And that is exactly what happened yesterday. And I, I it's going to be hard for him to come back from it. We'll see uh, maybe another $500 million will will do it. But uh, I have my well, doubt. About and, that. and I should point out for the record that as of this day, Day, all of them are ducking interviews on skullduggery. So, uh, you know, we challenge any of them to have the courage to come on and talk. We've got invitations out. And of course, we will let you know. But we got a lot to talk about today. So let's get on with it. We are now joined by a former deputy attorney general, somebody who uh, Clydeman and I covered many, many years ago during his days at the Justice Department, Don Ayer. Don, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you've ruffled some feathers of late by writing some really hard-hitting pieces in The Atlantic, most recently one that says, Bill Barr who actually succeeded you as deputy attorney general during the administration of President George H.W. Bush, should resign. Tell us why. Well, I, I think uh, the recent developments with regard to the sentencing intrusions are the thing that I've got, I think gotten a lot of people upset. But the reasons relate to his fundamental views with regard to the powers that the president should have. And there are views that he's had for a very long time. I think it's clear he had them back in the 80s when he was at OLC. And they are embodied in some of the opinions he wrote back then. And I was aware of them, generally speaking, at the time. But he was at OLC, and then ultimately he was attorney general under George H.W. Bush. And the market for pushing the envelope too hard on creating an autocratic president, which I think perhaps Bill has always wanted to do, 
wasn't real strong with George H.W. Bush. He wasn't the kind of person who wanted to be kind of an autocrat and, and with powers that are essentially unchecked. And so what's gone on in the last year and a half, and I say year and a half because if you, I think you, the most obvious place to start the modern phase of this is with the memo that he wrote in June of 2018 when he was either applying for or just wanted to make his views familiar to people considering who the next attorney general would be because he wrote a 19-page memo that was focused on essentially the impropriety of the more or less the entire Mueller investigation, but specifically laid out Barr's views on the powers that the executive should have and the incongruity between those powers and some of the things that were being considered as possible subjects, crime activities subject to investigation. And so specifically in that memo, he said some amazing things about the president. He said the president is the executive branch, is in italics. And he said, in essence, that the power to oversee the executive branch includes the power to obviously to oversee the Justice Department, and it's indivisible. And there's no way that conceptually, constitutionally, you can say that the president has any limit on that power. So he plainly has the power, according to Mr. Barr in that memo, to oversee criminal activities, which to a degree I would agree he does. But then he went on to say, and he has the power to oversee even an investigation of himself and to terminate it. And none of that can be improper because he is constitutionally given the power to do that. And so you have in that idea Really, it's, it's the exact same idea that the president himself has been saying recently, including a day before yesterday, I saw him say it, that he can do anything he wants as far as cases he can intrude. He hasn't done it, he said, but he can do it if he wants to. And that's just Bill Barr's vision of the power of the president. Now, some might say, Don, that, look, that memo was well known to the Senate when Barr came up for confirmation and he was confirmed. So, he, you know, these are not hidden or concealed views that he has. I agree. Um, I agree with that. It was a fellow named Neil Kinkoff, I know, testified about the memo very effectively, I thought, and, and told the whole story. And it was right out there for everyone to see. And and he was confirmed anyway. And, you know, I, I why that happened exactly, I think one can speculate about. I think he had been attorney general before under George H.W. Bush. George H.W. Bush didn't push the line on being an autocrat. So people said, gee, he's Maybe he seems to be an institutionalist, so he'd be okay. Maybe one of the reasons that uh, the alarm bells didn't go off as much when he was nominated and then went through the confirmation process is because people made a distinction between his ideology, his legal beliefs, and whether or not he was going to in some way undermine the rule of law and be overtly political in how he conducted himself as, as attorney general. And that's what I wanted to ask you about, because the outrage out there about Barr seems less, to, in terms of most people's reaction, is less about his maximalist views of presidential power. It has more to do with this idea that he has become the president's personal uh, attorney as opposed to the people's attorney, and that he is acting politically in ways that are dangerous by subverting the rule of law. How do you think of those two issues? I mean, are, are they related in your mind, or are they distinct? And is it would it be fair to say that he is principled, but his his views on presidential power and executive authority are dangerous for the democracy? Well, I think I think both things are true. Probably, I I, I think Bill Barr probably, and I don't I don't claim any great insight because I've not spent 
much time in the 40 years I've known him talking with him. So I, I'm not sure I understand quite what he's thinking, but I think he has had these views a very long time, long before he ever had any dealings with Donald Trump. And I, I mean, my, my best hunch, which is just a guess, is that he saw the opportunity of someone who pretty transparently wanted to be an all-powerful president and wanted to be able to do anything he wanted to as a potential real opportunity to advance his own beliefs about the way the government should be structured. And so I think the two things really come together in the current reality that we're now looking at. And so you find him doing and saying things that are personally advantageous to Donald Trump. And that seems quite unseemly when you're, you're using those powers in order to try to get a better deal for, for your friends in a criminal case and that sort of thing. But, but I think for Barr, it's all part of a vision um, that he's had a long time, which is that's the way the president should operate. So I feel personally, and what I tried to say in this article I wrote was that it's now come to the point where the number of steps that he has taken, and with some modicum of success, unfortunately, to interfere in various ways, which both are designed to unleash Donald Trump and give him powers and to keep him free of limitations and unleash a categorical uh, set of powers for the president, whoever he may be. And we're now seeing that reality coming forward. And if somebody doesn't do something pretty soon, we're going to be in a very difficult spot. When you say if somebody doesn't do something pretty soon, I mean, you've called on him to resign, but you've also said that if he doesn't resign, he ought to be impeached. Well, I, I have, and I, I think the first the first line of defense has got to be the resignation. And I think we're seeing a lot of things going on here that, you know, some people say, oh, we won't resign. In fact, that letter that came out, the 2,200 or so former DOJ people, the letter says, we call on you to resign, but since we don't think you will, and then they went on and talked about what the people in the department needed to do. I'm not quite so ready to say, I, I don't think you will. I don't know if he will or he won't, but it seems to me he should. He deserves to. He's misbehaved badly. And I think I've documented it. I think others have documented it. And I think it, he does need to resign. And I think the first thing we need to be talking about is not thinking up ways that he could be impeached. It needs it's people need to stand up and be counted. Well, he may he may have to do so anyway, well, because right. he's he's laid down a marker. He did in that interview with Pierre Thomas at ABC uh, last week. He said, it's impossible for me to do my job right. with the president continuing to tweet about cases involving the Justice Department and friends or political enemies of the president. Well, that clearly did not affect President no, Trump. He, he clearly he has doesn't want to stop. continued yeah. to tweet. Right. So in one sense, Barr may have painted himself into a corner here, right, where he may have no choice. Maybe so. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, I think that may well, well be possible. Well, isn't that a good thing that, oh, he, sure, that he laid no, down I, a marker and well, showed that despite what well, the harsh words you wrote, that he actually does have a line in the sand well, I think, uh, that okay. he does not believe yeah. uh, should be crossed? Well, I, I think the line in the sand he has that he's articulated is nothing other than a line in the sand that says, you're making it very difficult for me to essentially try to run the powers of the Justice Department in a way that let you do anything you want to, because you're claiming credit for it. You're saying you want me to do it. You're making it unseemly and difficult to do it. Nothing he has said, not a word that's been said, 
is, oh, well, we made a mistake. We, we, we don't, we shouldn't be doing this. This is wrong. We're going to pull back. We're going to do it differently. The only thing I've heard is today at the sentencing. Well, I, yeah, yeah. I, at the sentencing hearing of Roger Stone today, the assistant U.S. attorney who has been placed in now in charge of the case after the four prosecutors who were in charge of the case withdrew after their sentencing memo was withdrawn, clearly under orders from Maine Justice Barr's office, the new assistant U.S. attorney actually reversed the Justice Department's position position yet again and supported an enhancement for the sentencing of Roger Stone, which seemed to be an indication that, you know, maybe all the public flack has had an impact. Don, what do you make of the reversal? Well, you know, I I don't I don't know what to make of it. It was better than not doing it. I, 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 I think what you have to do really, though, is not get caught up in the specifics of, of a particular momentary event, you've got to look at the big picture. And when you look at the big picture, the big picture being Bill Barr from the time he took over as attorney general a year ago, the big picture is a, is a consistent pattern. I'll say it's all, actually it wasn't the first thing, but, but starting certainly with his whitewashing of the Mueller report and, and announcing that there really wasn't sufficient evidence of obstruction of justice in there. Well, obviously when it came out uh, three weeks later, it obvi- there obviously was. You know, you have him, his behavior, which is so unconventional for an attorney general when the uh, inspector general announced the uh, report from his investigation of the FBI investigation of Russian interference uh, in December, Barr and indeed his his uh, sidekick, Mr. Durham in, in Connecticut, both said individually that they disagreed with the finding, which was that the thing had been properly originated and properly overseen. And then in between, there's all of these things, these OLC opinions in various ways the department has supported, repeatedly supported the stonewalling of Congress's efforts to get information. I could go through five or six of those. And also supporting and litigating vigorously his emergency declaration, which is really just a way of trying to nullify the appropriation clause of the Constitution, which says the House has to originate appropriations of money and Congress has to appropriate money to spend it. And the president says, I want to spend it on a border wall. We never could get it appropriated. Congress, we tried and tried. Congress said no. He even said, I don't even really have an emergency, but I just want to move faster and yet the Barr's Justice Department is, in fact, litigating these cases seriously when El Paso and other cities are, are saying, don't do this. You don't have any power. So lots and lots of things. There's more we can talk well, about. Let me play uh, a devil's advocate here a little bit. You mentioned uh, Barr's uh, spinning of the Mueller report. In fact, the, the full Mueller report was released with minimal redactions. So we all saw what Mueller's conclusions were. Andrew McCabe was not prosecuted. Jim Comey was not prosecuted, despite criminal referrals from the inspector general. And Roger Stone today was told he's going to federal prison for three years and four months, not an insubstantial sentence. So when and and no political enemies of the president have been prosecuted by the Barr Justice Department. So some might say, you know, you're your your hand wringing is a bit overwrought. Well, I, I you know I think all of those things are individual situations which might have been worse. But I think what you have to look at is the pattern of what we do know and the pattern of what has gone on. And you know the idea that that Mr. McCabe was investigated for two years 
for conduct that, or at least there was a pending investigation. It was, it was a criminal referral right. from the inspector general who had been appointed by President right. Obama. Right. That's not a political prosecution. Well, for, for It con- wasn't a prosecution for, at all. For conduct that, that basically, the conduct of that sort that was being inquired into is not a sort of a thing that is virtually ever prosecuted. And, and the idea that it was let to sit and fester for two years is, is something on its own. But I, I don't want to go into quibbling about all of this, the claim is not that everything they've done was as bad as it could conceivably be. The point is that there are repeated, multiple, over and over again, incidents of conduct that are indefensible. It was indefensible to take the Mueller report and read it, and without telling anyone what the facts were, characterize it as lacking evidence that adequate to support allegations of obstruction. When you read it, it is full of allegations of obstruction that are very powerfully documented. Many, many, many things that were done that would support a case. And a thousand or more prosecutors wrote a letter saying that. Mueller even protested about the characterization as not fully capturing their the essence of what they were doing. You know, the IG report, it's incredible. The, the, I, I guess what I want to, when I want to take a step back and just say, and I, I won't go on at great length about it, but One of the really distressing things for people who have worked in the Justice Department is, and if you've been around as long as I have, you've been around long enough to know about Watergate and what occurred in Watergate and what occurred after Watergate and the reforms that came after Watergate that Edward Levy came in as Attorney General and put in place and the way they viewed the department's work, the overarching focus in his swearing in address and more generally just in their work was restoring trust in government, restoring trust in the Justice Department. And the key element of that, according to him in his own words, was we had to make people clear that no man, that's the word he used, no man is above the law, and and we are a government of laws and not men. And we can't have people, and you, you not only can't have people who can individually pull strings and be above the law and do whatever they want, you can't allow the public to strongly suspect or have any reasonable grounds to believe that that's going on. And so the great thing about the Justice Department, where I worked for about 10 years and others have worked a lot longer, is that we took a lot of pride in that as the way the place operated. And people wanted to be fair, and they took pride in the fact that it's hard to be fair. It's hard not to make mistakes. It's hard to be careful enough that people actually believe that you're trying absolutely to do the best thing and to do it right and to not be unfair to anyone. And now what we've got going on is not only are we not bending over backwards, but we are actively engaging in conduct that on its face appears biased and unreasonable. And everything I've talked about is in that category, I think. Let me pick up on that, because I remember as a young uh, Justice Department reporter, when I I guess I was covering you, uh, among others, learning about Edward Levy, uh, the Gerald Ford's attorney general. And he was a revered figure in the department because he established those Uh, helped establish those norms and guardrails that uh, have been sacrosanct for all these years until more recently. But I guess it points to the kind of conundrum here, which is, okay, so Bill Barr, let's say Bill Barr does resign. What is Donald Trump going to do? He's not going to put an Ed Levy type in at the Justice Department as acting attorney general. He's going to install someone who he trusts and who is going to, you know, fulfill. Richard, Richard uh, Grinnell it, it, will be dual hatted <laughs> as uh, acting director of intelligence, national intelligence well, and attorney general. Well, I, I think. So yeah, what do you do? No, I hear you. Well, I, I, I think the important thing 
I don't, we, you know, we, there's only so many things that you can deal with at once. And, <laughs> and, but the thing that I think you have to keep in mind is that there is an unholy alliance now between Donald Trump, which I, I won't, I won't proceed to characterize him. You all have familiar with him. Um, and a fellow who is exceedingly smart and has a lifelong devotion and a high level of intelligence about how to achieve what I believe, and I don't think I'm alone in this, is a truly nefarious, and I use the word un-American goal. It is a truly un-American goal to want to have a country that used to be, or still is hopefully, one where the rule of law prevails and nobody gets to subvert it and, and want to turn it into one where you've decided that the chief executive needs to essentially be all-powerful and, as the president has said, be able to do anything he wants. And Bill Barr is working to help him do that. My hope is, and I, it's not an idle hope, and I actually have some optimism about it, is that people will continue to speak out. There's a, there's a petition I'm aware of by the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, CREW, C-R-E-W, that House, as I heard today, it has 89,000 signatures saying Bill Barr must resign. There are other things that people have put out and, and have in the works, I think. They're, they're, people are stepping up. I think one of the things that needs to happen is bar associations, you know, organizations of lawyers in particular who understand the legal system, the ABA, maybe the American Law Institute, people that are institutions that are respected need to look at what's happening and say, hey, this is not partisan. This is all about the rule of law, and maybe even former judges groups. You're not going to get current judges. They can't speak out politically. It's, it subverts the entire process, but maybe former judges groups. But people need to stand up and be counted, and the time to do it is now. And we all need to because there's, we're, our democracy is on the line, in my, my opinion. But, Don, I'm not sure you answered Dan's question, which is, and then what? Donald Trump is still president. Okay. Somebody has to run the Justice right. Department. Right. Right. Um, well, getting somebody who you would approve of well, uh, appointed and nominated and confirmed seems unlikely. So what would follow a well, bar resignation? Right. Well, what I think would be true, I can't predict who would be nominated. Um, but what I think would happen is if he ends up resigning essentially because of the uproar that's coming out in the face of what he is now known to have done. You know, originating, I think the most of the uproar began with the focus on these intrusions into the criminal process in the last 10 days. But I think there's maybe a realization, and perhaps my article has contributed to it, I hope it has, that that's actually really bad, but it's of a piece with a lot else that he's doing. It's not a, it's not a separate thing. It's part of the same process of doing what you can to essentially have one person be above the law by negating not only, you know, intruding in the criminal process, negating the effects of even-handed and neutral investigations, but also interfering systematically throughout the whole year in the functioning of the constitutional checks and balances, the power of Congress to get his tax returns, the power of Congress to subpoena information, the power of Congress to appropriate money and have it be respected that they didn't appropriate money, the, the different things that they're doing. You know, the the refusal or the, the OLC opinion that when the whistleblower report relating to the uh, uh, Ukraine phone call took place, there was it was referred by the IG to 
The Justice Department and OLC wrote an opinion saying it wasn't a matter of urgent concern, so it didn't need to be turned over to the Hill. I mean, it's just a systematic, you know, I was going to say drip, 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 but it's more like a fire hose of things that they're doing that are systematically designed to prevent our checks and balances from working. If he resigns in the face of knowledge that that misconduct is essentially driving him out of office, I don't think the next guy can pull the same stunt. Well, it depends on what the basis for his resignation is. If he resigns in protest over President Trump's continued tweets, that puts a little different cast on it, right? Well, it does, but I, I still think the country's capable of learning from what's going on, and I'm, I'm optimistic and hoping that they will. The more people protest and speak out and understand that they're having their democracy stolen from them, the better, and that's something that needs to happen now. Don, when you were Deputy Attorney General, Barr was, I think, the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Office of Legal Counsel. Is, am I, that's right. is that right? No, that is right. So, so he would have reported to you, correct? No. Or did he report no, to the no. Attorney General? He well, reported it, to the Attorney it, General? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's, a, there's a line of reporting if you just look at the organization chart, but the, the reality of it was, and I don't know that this is particularly unusual, you know, in terms of the functions he performed, he, I, did, I did not have, I had some dealings with him, but very, very few, very limited. Uh, so it wouldn't be, it'd be wrong to say either that I was his boss in any meaningful way or, or that he reported to me, meaning he actually physically reported to me as coming in and reporting, you know, and that, n- none of that happened. Did you regard him as a, as a potentially dangerous, dangerous extremist at the time? Well, I, I, I don't think the dangers that we're now thinking about were similar then because yeah. you had a president who was George H.W. Bush, and he was a truly an institutionalist. He was truly, actually, he was truly a Republican. He was truly a Republican yeah. in the sense of limited government, limited powers. The last thing he wanted to do was concentrate vast and arbitrary authority in one person or even in Washington. And so that just wasn't where we were headed. So the dangers were, I, I, I will say, I, I knew what he was thinking about, and I knew what he was writing, and I wasn't terribly sympathetic toward it, but I didn't see it as any kind of peril of the sort we're now looking at, because this unholy alliance between Barr and Trump, you got somebody that wants to be the recipient of the powers that Bill Barr wants him to have, and that's a frightening thing. Another former deputy attorney general, George Terwilliger, who served under Barr during his first iteration as attorney general, wrote a uh, op-ed in the Washington Post today defending Barr and saying, look, it is not on its face improper that political appointees who are responsible, ultimately responsible and accountable for what goes on in the Justice Department, would want to review what line prosecutors are doing and making sure that their investigations and prosecutions are properly predicated and conducted. Uh, Is he wrong about that? Um, no, I mean, I, not at all in the sense that, and, and I would say, I would hasten to add that, that the original recommendation in, in the Stone case and all recommendations in major cases like that are reviewed up the line. Things get reviewed. There's a process. Part of what Edward Levy brought in was a review process where nobody goes off half-cocked and just does crazy stuff and gets away with it. There's a process of review, and that was all gone through, and it was gone through before the original memo was filed. And what ended up happening here was a sort of a very last-minute 11th-hour intervention, which sadly happened to coincide virtually with the president's tweeting about how unfair it was. 
And, and all of that relates to something else, which is that we're dealing with two different things here. It isn't a question of whether there is literally authority. There is the question of whether it's proper to do it within the norms that have developed. And one, one thing that's become real clear in the 45 years since the Watergate reforms were put in place, really became clear pretty much at the time that they were put in place, is that in most criminal cases, there is a fairly firm wall between the White House and what's going on in the criminal case. It's a, it's a norm. Is it, it is, is, it, is it because the president theoretically lacks any power to supervise it? No, it's not. He does. He's the head of the executive branch. But presidents have been intelligent enough to know that if you want to have the Justice Department and the criminal justice system respected, you leave that space. And that's almost an unexceptionable rule that has been voluntarily adhered to. And here, here you have, you're not just transcending that line here with the president interfering, but you're going in now to actively intervene uh, at a time that's very irregular. We put the memo in, in ordinary course, it had been reviewed. And so you're really showing at a minimum gross insensitivity to what does it take for the American people to have trust in their government particularly in this area where it's all about the worst things really the government could do to you. They can put you in jail. They can lock you up for a very long time. And they better be darn careful the way they handle those powers or people are going to be scared and distrustful. And here they're running around conducting themselves in a way that looks very political. And if, if he can do this for his friends, uh, if they can intervene for the president's friends, well, then what about his enemies, some of whom have been fired from their jobs already? And you mentioned Jim Comey uh, before of, well, they didn't prosecute Jim Comey. Well, they didn't, but not yet. And there are other people who have not been prosecuted yet either. One of the things we're waiting on for the shoes to drop is this marvelous little investigation. This is another thing that Brother Barr uh, and, uh, and and the, the Durham investigation that Barr is working on. Do you on have, I mean, John Durham is a career prosecutor. He's been uh, there for years. Eric Holder relied on him to do the investigation right. to the CIA interrogations. Do you have any reason to believe he is uh, serving as a political patsy of Bill Barr no. and has abandoned his no, principles as a prosecutor? No, I don't. And I also don't have any reason to think that Rod Rosenstein is a patsy either. But what I do know is that when... The Justice Department is making decisions in any number of different areas. There's sort of two things that have to come together if you're dealing with a case. You're dealing with the facts and finding the facts. Rod Rosenstein worked very hard to protect Bob Mueller's ability to find the facts. And that report is an incredible thing, and it's full of facts, and it's full of incriminating facts with regard to obstruction. And the conclusion could be reached that there was no sufficient evidence of obstruction, and Rod Rosenstein could Rod Rosenstein could stand behind um, Bill Barr at the, at the press conference where that was said, and you know, kind of looking like he was a, a gulag uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. resident or something. But the reason why that would be his duty, and the reason why John Durham and I have no question to no no reason to doubt his either patriotism or excellent service to the country, the president. On the law side of things, the attorney general, as the head law enforcement officer, is the one who gets to say, we're looking at the law this way. This is the way we are going to interpret the law here. You got your facts. I'll tell you what the law is. Your duty is to apply the law as I give it to you to those facts. And that's a very scary thing. That's the only way I can imagine that anybody could look at the Mueller report obstruction evidence and say, 
oh, there's no evidence of obstruction here. Only reason is because under Bill, in Bill Barr's world, in the memo he wrote in, in June of 2018, the president is virtually incapable of committing obstruction because he is the executive branch and he can do anything he wants. The unitary executive. Precisely. Um, we haven't even gotten to the subject of President Trump's pardons, uh, which uh, many of which uh, came out uh, in the last uh, few days. Um, and I think which falls under the category you were talking about before, something where the president has absolute authority, right. uh, but maybe would be improper to do under certain circumstances. And that may be what uh, Roger Stone is can, can look forward to. But it's great to have you on the on the show and hear your perspective on all of these subjects. And uh, so we thank you for coming on Skullduggery. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun. And now on the ground in Las Vegas, our Nevada correspondent, Hunter Walker. Hunter, uh, welcome back once again to Skullduggery. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Mike. How are you doing? Good. Do you have any money left? <laughs> you know, I, I, I have not gambled yet. Uh, unless you count winning a large, whimsical stuffed gorilla at Circus Circus, which is truly Vegas's finest rundown casino. Right. Well, I can only imagine what the wagering must have been on uh, the Wednesday night Democratic debate. Uh, <laughs> and anybody who like was selling Bloomberg short would have made a killing, I would think. Um, give me your take. That was quite a uh, quite a slugfest. Yeah, that was feisty, huh? <laughs> Actually, well, um, as you as as you were saying, you know, on predicting. Danny Sanders's odds of winning are surging while Mike Bloomberg's are plunging. Uh, and that I, was posted I, by let, let's explain that. Well, let's dig into that. First of all, on Bloomberg, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the guy looked like as out of place as anybody could look, seemed to have not at all anticipated what his responses were going to be to all the obvious uh, issues he was going to get pummeled on. You know, I don't know if you've talked to any of the Bloomberg people today, but I mean, man, they must be in a state of shock. Well, so I talked to Howard Wolfson, who's a senior advisor on the Bloomberg campaign and a former deputy mayor from Bloomberg's time in City Hall. Uh, and he was the first one in the spin room after the debate, sort of, you know, uh, reviewing <laughs> what, it. From what the, did the he Bloomberg have campaign. to spin? What <laughs> so, so, you know, he said that Bloomberg, quote unquote, weathered the storm. Yeah. And, you know, he framed it as a debate where they knew they were going to come under heavy fire. He said, quote, we knew we were going to come in and the cannons were loaded for bear. He was everyone's target. And Wolfson's literal spin was that, you know, Bloomberg took all the attacks really well. And it was actually, you know, the Bloomberg campaign is trying to say that there's only two viable Democrats right now, Mayor Bloomberg and Bernie Sanders. And he said that, you know, while Mayor Bloomberg totally kept his cool amid all these attacks, it was actually Bernie Sanders who had a rough debate. And he said when Mike Bloomberg dared criticize Bernie Sanders, it looked like he was flying through the stage at him. Now, I mean, I think if you look at the headlines and, and you know, if you watch that debate, I don't think anyone else shares Howard Wolfson's take on that. B Bloomberg weathered the storm the way New Orleans weathered Katrina, I think, uh, <laughs> would probably be oh. uh, the oh. uh, analogy I could think of. But, I mean— 
Look, it seemed to me that, um, I mean, Warren had a really strong performance there, nailing Bloomberg on the NDAs on sexual harassment. I thought that was the signature moment from the debate, the one that will be most memorable. And it did not look like Bloomberg had much of an answer for that at all. Uh, Yeah, I I, I I think you're absolutely right. It, it touches on something that, you know, it, it touches on something that you were saying before, where it just seemed like he was shockingly unprepared. And, you know, I actually came out of the City Hall press corps. I, I covered Mayor Bloomberg's administration for a couple of years. I believe that prior to last night, I'm actually the, fir- the last person who asked him directly and personally about the allegations of sexism and harassment of his company. When I did that at a mayoral press conference, he responded by saying it was an outrage. For me to ask that question and yelling at me, so I guess by that really? measure, wait, wait, it was an outrage for you to ask him about allegations of sexual harassment at his company, yeah, and specifically sexist comments that he's alleged to have made. And so he yelled at me and said that was a quote unquote outrage. You know, by that measure, he handled Senator Warren's questioning a lot better. But yeah, I mean, you know, these allegations. I, I bring up my own history with it just to point out that. You know, it's been a decade that this stuff has been out there in the ether. They had to know it was going to come up. And I just don't think the response of, you know, referring to these um, NDAs that block women from discussing the allegations as, quote unquote, consensual is really a sharper, well thought out response. And then when Howard Wolfson went into the spin room, you know, he got questions about all this stuff. And he also got questions from me about a few things that Bloomberg had said on stage. And I was very struck by the answers because they didn't seem to to factually add up. One of them, you know, the other big exchange apart from the sexism thing was when Bloomberg got questioned on stop and frisk. Now, this is the policy that was one of the most controversial things in his administration, where minorities were disproportionately targeted to be stopped and searched by the police. It ended up getting stopped by a court order in 2013, Bloomberg's last year in office. A federal judge ruled it unconstitutional. Prior to launching his presidential campaign, Bloomberg actually apologized for stop and frisk. But on stage, you know, he he leaned on his own apology, but he also claimed that, you know, when he, quote unquote, personally discovered that there were too many stops, they were reduced. And that's just not true. As I just was saying, it was ordered by a federal judge for this policy to end. So I actually pressed Howard Wolfson on that in the spin room. And, you know, Wolfson said, quote, in the last year of the mayoralty, we dropped stops by 95 percent. That was before the court order, not after it. And that's just not true. I mean, data from the New York Civil Liberties Union shows the number of stops was reduced only by about 64 percent in 2013. And of course, that's as the court case was ongoing. This is a court case where the Bloomberg administration fought for the policy and Bloomberg actually initially angrily vowed to appeal the order, stop, um, you know, ending stop and frisk. So their whole narrative about this just doesn't stand up to the littlest bit of fact checking. What about Biden's claim that it was Obama administration monitors that forced the change in stop and frisk? You know, that's a little more nebulous. It, it is broadly true that it is federal intervention that forced that change. One can debate sort of, you know, how the Obama monitors kind of interacted with the court there. But, you know, it was definitely federal intervention. And it certainly wasn't a personal decision from Mayor Bloomberg. The other thing that, that Bloomberg said on stage that struck me is, you know, another one of the big attacks against him comes from Bernie Sanders and others who argue he's using his billion dollar personal fortune to buy the election. 
And what Bloomberg said when he was, um, you know, questioned about progressives who say billionaires shouldn't even exist is he said, quote, all I know is I've been very lucky, made a lot of money, and I'm giving it all away to make this country better. Now, he's given away over $10 billion um, over the years, but his net worth is an estimated $60 billion, And in spite of that <laughs> philanthropy, it's only been rising. So that notion that he's, quote, unquote, giving it all away is just it's not remotely true. That $10 billion includes political giving that obviously fits with his own self-interest and is backing his own campaign here. So I pressed Wolf- Wolfson about that, and he described it as a quote-unquote quibble. He said, I don't know if you want to quibble with the fact that the guy's giving away billions of dollars a year. You're welcome to do that. But, you know, it's bizarre to me that this guy is standing on stage claiming he's given away all of his money when literally I've unearthed photos of his house in Bermuda – that has, you know, a golf course. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Golf he's, course got, he's got a house in Bermuda? Yeah, he's, he's got Bermuda. many houses. But yeah, because Bermuda last night in, in the debate, he seemed to imply that his only residence was the city of New York. Remember, there was a back and you're, forth you're, about, it, where you know, where are your houses? And he said New York you're, you're City. You're absolutely right. Yeah. He, he, was, he was attacking Bernie Sanders for having, you know, three houses, including, you know, like most members of Congress, a residence in his home state, and in Washington, which is basically a requirement of the job, right? So where Bloomberg, does Bloomberg who, have houses? Oh, my God. He's got a bunch in New York. He actually sort of pioneered um, a thing that we're seeing, you know, the Uber rich do in recent years where he bought multiple townhouses on the Upper East Side and knocked down the walls in the middle to create one mega house. Right. But his most controversial property is this house in Bermuda. And it was controversial just because he regularly spent time there while he was the mayor of the city. And there was this one famous instance in 2010 where New York sort of had a snow removal crisis and it came out that sort of while the streets were clogged, Mayor Bloomberg was not, you know, in the war room manning the response. He was actually in Bermuda. In the wake of this, I unearthed photos of the Bermuda house and it, it my favorite feature was a sort of putting green and golf course on the lawn. So this guy's sitting there saying he's given away all of his money, implying he only has one house in New York and he's got, you know, a beautiful estate with a golf course in Bermuda. You can also look on YouTube and see videos of his daughter, Georgina, showing off the massive equestrian stables that he has bought for her. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it's incredible to know these things and then see him on stage, you know, implying he's basically a renunciate. OK, let's uh, just look forward a bit. Uh, Nevada caucus <laughs> on Saturday. Uh, how does it look right now? You know, I've talked to a lot of people down here. Um, I've been down here for a couple of days. It seems very clear to me that Bernie Sanders has the strongest ground game. He also has a big program that we're going to be writing about on Yahoo that's designed to maximize Latino outreach. And even though there's a very small Latino population in Iowa, there were really encouraging signs for his campaign that this program is working. So, you know, it looks like he's very strong here. But of course, especially after the debacle in Iowa, this is another caucus. And there have there were concerns about this caucus process last time. I've had multiple campaigns tell me they cannot really predict what's going to happen here on Saturday. In fact, the only thing most people are predicting is that it's going to be messy and there could be you know controversy and confusion around the results. But this gets to something that you were saying, you know, you were hinting at earlier, which is you know Warren had a great night. Why would people on the betting markets be saying that Bernie Sanders is surging? And I think that right now where we're sitting. Assuming that he has an even decent result in Nevada, right, he's got all the momentum. You know, he nearly tied – he basically tied Pete Buttigieg in Iowa. Uh, he won New Hampshire. And even though Pete Buttigieg currently has a one-delegate lead, 
all the upcoming states look terrible for him. Um, so it's starting to really look like on Super Tuesday, where Bernie is polling very well in um, Texas and California, if he does well enough in Nevada to keep his momentum going, it seems like that's when he could start to have a pretty big lead, particularly against Bloomberg, who's going to begin with zero delegates when all of the candidates who are on the ballot in the first four early states you know, could have 30 to 50. Well, we will have to see because uh, there's still the question of can how much can Bernie sort of break 30 percent, which is, I think, the highest he's gotten so <laughs> far. And if he doesn't, he can still win against the divided field, but remain short on the number of delegates, which is why he's the one candidate last night who said that the nomination should go to the person who has the most delegates at the time of the convention, not who has the majority, uh, which no, yeah, I mean, that was that was one to. of that was one of the most fascinating and important moments of the debate. You know, right. uh, we, we can say that Bernie Sanders looks to be in the best position right now. He's certainly, you know, the front runner within this crowded field. However, you know, it seems highly possible. We were talking about this uh, on the episode from New Hampshire. You know, every year political junkies like to say, oh, this is going to be the time we have a brokered convention. This time it really looks like with the field being this crowded, with Bloomberg insisting he's going to play late, we really could reach a situation where, yeah, Bernie might have a plurality. He might be in the lead delegate wise, but he's short of that out and out delegate majority. And that means particularly given Bernie's, you know, tense relationship with the sort of main line of the party that we really could be seeing some kind of floor fight or, you know, uh, this could really just come down to the convention. Well, Hunter, uh, you are wetting <laughs> my appetite for Milwaukee <laughs> and uh, we will have lots of skullduggery to talk then. Have fun. Check out the casinos and um, save your money and um, <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. I'll put 20 bucks on red for you, Mike. <laughs> OK, take care. <laughs> See you soon. Bye. Thanks to former Deputy Attorney General Don Ayer and Yahoo's own Hunter Walker for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Talk to you soon.